Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Our challenging conversation today is about race. Now this topic is a minefield for me. It's a minefield for us. Because race, race has become so politicized, so polarized that even the mere mention of the word is enough to trigger an amygdala hijack. For those of you who join us regularly, you may remember that an amygdala hijack is a biological response to danger. And race, is a dangerous topic for many of us. It evokes strong emotions that interfere with our ability to think clearly or listen well. And that's why there's so few healthy conversations about race. So then some of you may be wondering, then why are we having this conversation at all? Why not just avoid this topic? Why bring up race again? I mean, slavery ended uh, over 150 years ago. Legalized segregation ended over 50 years ago. Why Many of us weren't even alive during those times, so why bring up these, these painful memories from our nation's past when they're just going to cause more division? It's a good question, but you may remember from two weeks ago that these challenging conversations don't just go away because we ignore them. In fact, holding on to a challenging conversation is a lot like holding on to a live grenade. Eventually, it's going to explode. So the real question is, how do we broach these potentially explosive encounters in a way that brings more healing than harm? How do we communicate meaning in these, in these cross-racial conversations? How do we offer the gift of gab? Well, like most challenging conversations, the key is to listen well, is to listen with curiosity, to listen trying to understand the other person's perspective. And what we discovered at the beginning of this series is that the first step to listening well is to prepare for these conversations to prepare for them. That way we can carry our triggers and, and our pers God's perspective with us throughout the conversation. So the first step to listening well is to prepare. But there's an important second step that we must take as well. See, there are hidden dynamics. There's a hidden dynamic that undergirds these cross-racial conversations that make it challenging for us to listen well. And I'd like to introduce that dynamic to you with a, a little bit of group participation. So go out and, and grab something that you can take notes with. You can grab a piece of paper and, and a pen or take out your cell phone and, and launch your note-taking app, whatever it is. I encourage you to get out and grab something that you can take notes with. I know that I'm, I'm asking you to get off the couch and, and do this with me, but I assure you that it's going to be worth it. So grab something, okay? Give you a moment to do that. 
Now, in a moment, we're going to put a list of words on the screen. And on the count of three, I'd like you to read that list with me out loud. And that's very important, that you read the list with me out loud, wherever you are. If you're in a public place, then maybe you need to whisper it out loud. But it's very important that you say these words for yourselves. And you don't need your devices right now. You can just, um, you, you won't be taking notes at this moment. Just read this list with me out loud. Okay, so we'll put those words on the screen. There you go. One, two, three. Bed, rest, awake, tired, dream, night, blanket, doze, slumber, snore, pillow, peace, yawn, drowsy. All right, now we're going to take that list off the screen. And I'd like you to try to remember as many of those words as possible. Just jot them down on whatever device you have for recording your notes. Just write them down. And while you do that, we'll play some thinking music in the background for you. Are you done? So how many words were you able to list? There were actually 14 words. So how many of you remember the word dose? Pillow? Blanket? Sleep? Actually, sleep wasn't on the list. So if you remembered seeing the word sleep, you succumbed to what some psychologists refer to as categorization processes. See. We humans have this very useful tendency to remember to link like information together. Now, I don't, I don't know how many of you actually remembered seeing the word sleep. But if you're anything like the other groups that I've done this activity with, then, then the majority of you remembered seeing the word sleep even if it wasn't there. And so these categorization processes, we, we use them because they help us to group like pieces of information under broad, simplistic categories. And that's why we remembered seeing the word sleep even if it wasn't on the list. I mean, take a look. We'll put it back on the screen for you. Sleep isn't on the list. And yet many of us remembered seeing it because all these words have to do with our category of sleep. See, our minds. Minds do this constantly. We constantly, unconsciously categorize information. And most of the time, it's very useful. I mean, just imagine if we didn't have a category for chairs, so that every time you saw a brand new chair, you had to figure out what it was for. Like, do I play with it? Do I stand on it? Do I eat on it? I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's because we do have a concept. We do have a category for chairs, so that even if we see a chair that we've never seen before, even one as strange as this one, we know instinctively that it was meant to be sat upon. And this tendency is so powerful that sometimes we link, we link unrelated pieces of information together. That's why we will see shapes in the clouds or a face on the moon, because our minds are trying to create patterns even when one doesn't 
exist. And that's when categorization can become dangerous. Because our categories can fill in information that doesn't exist, or even recall events that never even happened. There's a researcher by the name of Stan Klein who did a study about this in El Paso, Texas. Now, El Paso has a significant Hispanic community. And he gathered these participants together from communities outside the Hispanic community and had them read a story about a person named X. And among other things, he told them that X was young, X was a vandal, <clears throat> and X liked to hang out with friends after school. Then 20 minutes after they had read the story, he brought them all back and asked them questions about what they had read started by asking them if X was a vandal. And the vast majority of them, 86% of them, remembered that, yes, X was a vandal. And then he asked them if X was Hispanic, male, and in a gang. And even though those three facts were not included in the story, about half of them remembered that X was Hispanic. 80% remembered that X was male. And 40% remembered that X was in a gang. And when they were asked to recall specific details about X, they began describing a person that fit their stereotype of Hispanics rather than, rather than this, the details that were provided in the story. Now here's what's incredible. Just one day later, just one day later, they brought all these participants back and asked them the exact same questions, and this time, Almost all of them remembered that X was Hispanic, male, and in a gang. See, we often allow our categories to fill in information that doesn't exist. That's why we will assume information about people we don't know. In fact, the less we know someone, the more we assume about them. And we don't just use racial categories. We use gender. We use generational. We use religious categories to define people. And all of us do this. It doesn't matter who we are, black or white, Hispanic or Asian, liberal or conservative. All of us assume information about other people. So then how do we fight this? If these cognitive processes happen without us even realizing them, if, if, if this categorization is hard-coded into our brains, how do we keep ourselves from assuming information about people we don't know? Well, the good news is that this problem isn't new. Jesus dealt with this all the time when he was on earth. In fact, one of his most famous parables refers to the human tendency to categorize other people. Now, this is not a parable about race, but it does, it does provide a solution, a simple yet powerful solution to the categorization processes that interfere with our ability to listen well in cross-racial conversations. So if we want, if we want to bring more healing than harm in these conversations, then that solution is a step that all of us must take. And it's found in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up, turn them on, flip over to Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. Now, this parable starts in verse 30, but 
the, we're told why these, this parable was told by Jesus in verses 25 through 29. And that setup is crucial to understanding what Jesus is saying. So let's dive into verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this man's intentions are clear. He's not there to learn from Jesus. He's there to lure Jesus into a trap. That's why it says that he was there to test his knowledge. So Jesus says to him, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He's basically showing off his knowledge, right? And so Jesus replies, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now here's where it gets real. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who, who is my neighbor? And that was a loaded question. That was a loaded question. See, among the Jews, the question, who is my neighbor, elicited constant debate. See, most Jews agreed that pagans like the Romans were not their neighbors. And, and those imposter Samaritans were definitely out. But even among the Jews, there were several different groups. There were the, there were the Sadducees who put primary importance on the temple. There were the Pharisees who emphasized personal purity. There were the Essenes who felt like the world was so corrupt that the only way that they could follow God was to remove themselves from society. Then there were the sinners like the prostitutes, the compromisers like the tax collectors, and the violent rebels like the zealots. And all of these groups, all of these groups looked upon each other with suspicion. They allowed their categories to divide them. And that's why, according to Jewish historians, this period was one of the most divided in Jewish history. And so this question, who is my neighbor, was a very important one for them because it told them who God wanted them to love. So they're asking, God, Jesus, who, who are the outsiders and who are the insiders? Who are the holy ones and who are the hellbound ones? And that answer was very controversial. And that's why this religious expert asked Jesus this question, because he wants to pigeonhole him into a category. He wants to know, Jesus, are you a leftist Sadducee or a rightist Pharisee? Who are you? And who is your neighbor? But Jesus, he refuses to be drawn into this controversy. He refuses to be placed inside a box. And in a very Jesus way, he responds to this question with a story. And through this story, he reveals the solution for the categorization processes that make it difficult for us to listen well in cross-racial conversations. Take a look. It's in verse 30. Now, this parable is all about shattering. It's all about shattering our stereotypes. And that's why every character in this story behaves exactly opposite as the Jewish original audience would have expected them to behave. Take a look. Verse 30. Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jesus sets up this scenario. It was a common one because this, this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. So this kind of thing happened all the time. And so this man is lying, beaten and dying on the side of the, side of the road. And then, now by chance, a priest was going down the road. Now a priest was a very highly respected member of the Jewish community. I know as Christians, sometimes we, we think of these Jewish priests as the enemy. But this, his original audience, Jesus' original audience, wouldn't have thought of them as that way. They, if, if there was anybody that would help a dying man on the side of the road, it would have been a priest. And yet, see what happens. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I mean, he doesn't even hesitate. He goes as far away from this man as he can as far away, and that would have blown their minds because that's not how they would have expected a priest to behave. And then this happens, 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, a Levite's not quite a priest, but he did help out in, in the temple. He, he took care of the scrolls. He took care of people who came to the temple. It's kind of like deacons, what deacons do now. So again, this is a type of person that you would expect to stop to help a Jewish man in need. And yet, for whatever reason, maybe he thought it was too dangerous. Maybe, maybe he, he thought this man was too far gone. He does some quick calculation in his mind, and he decides, this man is not my neighbor, and he walks away. And then, 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, where this dying Jewish man was. And if, if the priest and the Levite were the most likely candidates to help this Jewish man, Samaritan was at the bottom of that list. See, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Hatred is not too strong of a word. There was a long-standing history of Jews and Samaritans abusing and killing one another. So if there were any person that would leave a dying Jewish man on the side of the road, it would have been a Samaritan man. And yet, the Bible continues, and when he saw him, when the Samaritan saw this Jewish man, he had compassion. It says that he had compassion on this man, that his heart went out to a man that all of society told him that he should hate. And he does for this man what this man probably wouldn't do for him if the roles were reversed. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. He doesn't just dump him off at the inn. That's more than most people would have expected. But he doesn't even just do that. He stays and he cares for this man. And when it's time for him to leave, verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He uses his own money. He uses his own money to pay for this man's care. See, this Samaritan could have allowed his categories to define his decision-making, but instead he allows his compassion to override 
his categories. And after shattering all of their simplistic categories of how these people will behave, Jesus asks this very important question. He asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So who was truly this man's neighbor? Was it the priest? Was it the priest who shared a similar religion? Was it the Levite who shared a similar background and culture? Was it either of the two men that all of the generalizations and stereotypes and categories of society said should be this man's neighbor? And this expert in the law replies, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. In other words, the Samaritan who went out of his way to care for this Jewish man. The Samaritan man who allowed his compassion to override his categories. So Jesus says to him and to us, you go and do likewise. See, what enables us, what enables us to overcome discrimination and prejudice? What enables us to listen well in a cross-racial conversation is compassion, concern for the suffering of others. Compassion overrides our categories. And what the world needs now is a little bit more compassion. What the world needs more than anything else is a little bit more concern for other people's sufferings. See, this is, this is a key step to listening well in a cross-racial conversation, is to listen with compassion. I want you to hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s words about this passage. The first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? How will that impact me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Too often, this cross-racial conversation becomes about my needs, my wants, my sufferings, instead of the other person's needs, wants, and sufferings. And yet, if we want to communicate meaning in this cross-racial conversation, if we want to do more healing than harm, then we have to begin with compassion, with concern for the other person's suffering. And that's true for all of us, black or white, Asian or Hispanic, conservative or liberal. All of us need to begin with compassion. And if there's any group out there that should be known for their compassion, it should be we who are the followers of Christ. I mean, Christ came to this world because he was motivated by compassion. He had compassion on people who rejected him, compassion on people that all of society said should be his enemies. And while he was dying and suffering on the cross, he looked down with compassion on the very people who put him there. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Compassion was Jesus's MO. And he calls us to do the same. 
You know, one of the Apostle Paul's favorite metaphors for the church is the body of Christ. And we've been reading as a staff a book that expounds on that metaphor in a way that brings to light powerful truths about Christian community. And in the chapter about skin, Dr. Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey, the authors, describe an immuno response called hypersensitivity. And, and they do so in a way that explains why compassion is so crucial. Listen to what they write. We developed a mechanical device that presses a metal rod against the fingertips with measured force. If I put my hand under the hammer, it feels rather pleasant, like a vibro massage. But if I let that machine run on for several hundred beats, my finger turns slightly red and feels uncomfortable. After 1,500 beats, I must pull my finger out, for I can no longer bear the pain. When I return to the machine the next day, I can only tolerate a couple hundred beats before yanking my finger away. So what was painless and maybe even a little pleasant initially becomes painful after repeated beats because the body can only take so much stress before it becomes inflamed and hypersensitive. And according to Dr. Brand, this immune system response is the body's way of protecting its most vulnerable parts. See, the, the body turns up the volume on our pain so we know to give that part a chance to heal. Now, I've experienced hypersensitivity myself while playing tennis. Uh, initially, I used incorrect form while doing my forehand, and I injured my wrist. So now, whenever I accidentally revert to bad form, I feel pain. My body tells me, stop. See, pain is my body's way of telling me that I need to give that part a chance to heal. And I ignore that pain at my own peril. But hypersensitivity is not just a physiological condition. It can be a psychological one as well. This is how the authors describe it. At times, all of us experience a psychological form of hypersensitivity. An accumulation of small stresses builds up, overdue bills, work pressures, house repairs, irritating habits of family members while staying together under COVID in the same house over and over again. And suddenly, every minor frustration hits like a sledgehammer. Has that ever happened to you before where you feel so overwhelmed? It doesn't matter how small the irritation is, it's just too much. Pain, whether physical or emotional, works precisely because it is loud and insistent. Otherwise, we would ignore it. Hypersensitivity alerts the body to skin's urgent need of relief from stress. Likewise, emotional hypersensitivity in one member can alert the larger community to the need for respite or outside care. So let me give you an example of how emotional hypersensitivity could work. Let's just say for a moment that when I sleep, I have a tendency to snore. This may or may not be fake news, but let's just, for the sake of argument, hypothetically say that when I sleep, I sound like a buzzsaw cutting through hardwood lumber. If that were the case, my wife would have a difficult time sleeping next to me. But because my wife is so loving 
and so kind, she'd probably say, the first time this happened, she'd probably say to herself, you know, I love him so much. It was hard to sleep, but I'd rather sleep with his snoring than sleep without him. But if this snoring kept up, if it kept up, Night after sleepless night, eventually she would be pushed to the breaking point. Eventually she would get to the place where she would have to express her pain to me. She'd probably say something like, honey, I love you, but your snoring is driving me crazy. And she would repeat that message until something relieved her stressor. Now that, that message is not an easy one for me to receive because because there's not much I could do about my snoring. And the things that I could do involve a lot of work and inconvenience for me. And so uh, if she kept on repeating that message over and over again, I might respond with something like, honey, why are you bringing that up again? Why are you playing the snoring card again? Don't I take such good care of you? Don't I take such good care of the kids? Don't I bring home the veggie bacon every night? And it's not like you're always that easy to sleep next to. I mean, you do smell like roses when you perspire, but have you ever tried to sleep in a rose bush? Super distracting. So if you're having a hard time sleeping, then just put in earplugs. But don't bring this up again. I'm sick and tired of hearing about it. I could say that. But I don't, because I love my wife. And if I said that, I'd probably be sleeping on the couch that night. See, my snoring is easier for me to ignore than it is for her to ignore, because the status quo works to my favor. See, if we had this conversation about my snoring, I'd probably have to make changes that made my life more difficult. So I'm faced with a choice. Do I choose compassion? Do I choose concern for my wife's suffering? Or do I focus on my own? We are faced with that exact same choice every time we enter into a cross-racial conversation. We face the same choice as the Good Samaritan. Will we choose to be driven by our categories? Or will we choose to be guided by our compassion? There are members of our community who have been saying for a while now that they are in pain, that the tension of living with a worldview that paints them as inferior, that the anxiety of wondering whether their children will come home at night, that the stress of constantly being perceived as a threat has driven them to the breaking point. And yes, they're inflamed. Yes, they're sensitive. But it's because the constant stressors on their lives have become unbearable. And the protests over the past few months have been their way of letting us know about their pain. They want the larger body to understand the pain that they live with every single day. And so the question is, how will we, the followers of Christ, respond? The least that we can do is listen with compassion, listen with concern for their sufferings. And I know, I know that the protests, that the constant posts on social media are uncomfortable because pain is always uncomfortable. But instead of pushing away that pain, instead of ignoring it, 
Instead of amputating the part that hurts, we should nurture it. We should care for it so it has a chance to heal. So listen. Listen with compassion. Listen with a concern for other sufferings because that's how we overcome our categories. And that's, that's how we give the gift of gab.